been with this, this movement for about 14 years now, almost. And one of my, my great pleasures is always to come and, and share God's Word with my brothers and sisters this morning and, and our guests. It's, it's very special, and, and I'm honored to do it. And we might ask ourselves, as we, as we endeavor to start to share the Word of God, to share what the Bible says, is the Bible even really relevant today? It's one of these hotter issues we have in our culture that you can read. If you spend any time online, whenever the Bible comes up, it's very controversial. Is it relevant? Is it, is it useful to us? Is, is this... The scriptures, are they helpful for people living in the 21st century? Now, for people who answer that question no, say it's not relevant, one of the places that they love to go in the Bible to make their point is the book of Leviticus, right? I was just reading an article last night, somebody making the case that Christianity is all right, it's just the Bible that's the problem, and here's why. Look at Leviticus, right? It seems to be a favorite place to look for people who want to dismiss the Bible as irrelevant, outdated, because of its numerous laws and regulations. And I think of laws like, you know, don't glean the edges of your field, don't eat shellfish, uh, don't mix two types of fabric, don't sow two kinds of seed, don't get a tattoo, uh, don't eat meat with blood in it. And never mind the, the, the litany of, of laws about molds and skin diseases. I mean, how could this possibly be relevant for us today? How could we think that? How is this helpful? Now, as Christians, as, as believers in the Scriptures, I hope believers in the Scriptures, who would say the Bible is relevant to us today, why don't we ever read Leviticus? Am I right? Gordon Wenham's an Old Testament scholar, and he wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Leviticus. And he begins his introduction like this. He says, Leviticus used to be the first book that Jewish children studied in the synagogue. In the modern church, it tends to be the last part of the Bible anyone looks at seriously. Does that ring true to anybody here? So, I mean, why is that? Well, if we're honest, if we're candid about it, right, it's, it's dull. It's boring. It's very repetitive. It's hard to understand. It's organized in a very peculiar way, and many of its principles are, are inaccessible to us through just a, a casual reading. And so we're in this odd place with the book of Leviticus. It seems to be simultaneously one of the best and worst-known books of the Bible, It gets a lot of attention if you want to claim the Bible is irrelevant. And if you actually claim that the Bible is relevant, you give it very little attention. And so maybe it's time to take another look at this book. Let's go to the source. Let's answer that question. Is this really relevant? Maybe it's time for us to take a look at the book of Leviticus, maybe for the first time, or maybe a second look. And so turn with me, if you would, if you have your Bibles, to Leviticus chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 45. Just read one verse. Leviticus is the third book in your Bible, right after Exodus and before Numbers. Leviticus 11.45, and listen carefully with me to what God's Word says. 
I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. I would argue that this one verse is an apt summary verse for the entire book of Leviticus. But to see why, let me try to set up for you the context of this book a little bit, especially as we're kicking off this series in Leviticus. I want to give you a flavor for where Leviticus fits in the larger picture of the Scriptures. And to do that, I want to jump back just one book to the book of Exodus. Because the book of Exodus opens up describing how the Israelite population in Egypt grew so large that the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, began to see them as a threat to his kingdom. So what does he do? Well, fearing their numbers, Pharaoh forces the Israelites into slavery. And so in Exodus chapter 1, it says, The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with harsh labor. And it reaches the point even where Pharaoh orders all male Israelite babies to be thrown into the Nile so they're killed. So this great and numerous people are slaves, and slaves to a king who detests them, slaves in a land that is not their own. And in the midst of this horrible oppression, God raises up Moses to deliver them, to deliver them from slavery. And the first half of Exodus describes this great conflict between God and Pharaoh with Moses as God's representative. And the turning point in this conflict comes about on the night of the Passover, where God judges the land by killing the firstborn living thing in every household. But he instructs the Israelites to kill a perfect male lamb with no defects, and cover their doorways with the blood of this lamb. So God's judgment passes over the Israelites while the Egyptians and their their livestock are killed. So the Israelites are soon released. They're set out to a land that will be their own, and they journey with God to Mount Sinai where they receive the Ten Commandments and instructions for building a tent, a tabernacle, the tent of meeting in which God himself will dwell. And Exodus concludes with the completion of this tabernacle at Mount Sinai. So when we get to Leviticus, the the, the Israelites are all at Mount Sinai. That's where the, the setting for this entire book is at Mount Sinai. And they're expecting to journey to this land that God had promised them. So a group of, of recently and miraculously freed slaves is now learning about this God who has freed them, who has saved them and delivered them from this oppression. And when you read Leviticus, you notice it's mostly dictation from God to Moses. It starts this way in chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites. And then immediately the text jumps into some really specific instructions about sacrifices. And this is where most of us just check out. We start to struggle with the text now. It's easy to get lost in the details here because it can read like a a cookbook at times or even just a list of rules. And our text today is actually situated among one of these lists. It's a series of laws about holiness. But it's really a refrain 
that occurs throughout the book. Our verse comes at the end of this long chapter on regulations about food and, and animals, which animals were clean and okay to eat and which animals were unclean and, and not to be eaten. And we find ourselves at the end of this chapter, and it says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. So I want to notice a couple things about this. First, notice here, and actually all over the Old Testament, that God reminds the Israelites that he was the one who freed them from Egypt, from an evil king and from ultimately from death in Egypt. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't the Israelites in their power. It was God. Let's make no mistake about that. I was the one who brought you out of Egypt. And the command in the text at the very end to be holy, it's a consequence of something. Right? It follows a therefore. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. And what precedes that command is the, the grounds, the rationale, the motivation for the command. You could imagine a father lecturing his child in, in college. I am your father who raised you and is paying for your tuition. Therefore, work hard because I am working hard. Right? Sometimes I'll ask one of my kids, I'll ask them to do something. And they'll say, why? And my answer will be, because I'm your father. That's why. I asked you to do it, right? And what's implicit in that statement is, I know what's best, and I have the authority to tell you what to do. I'm your dad, so you listen to your dad. If you read through Leviticus, you'll notice that these long lists of commands are sometimes followed by a phrase like this. It'll just say, I am the Lord. It's the, it's the same type of thing. It's a motivation. It's a grounds for the commands. I have the authority to issue these to you. So that's our motivation, perhaps, but what's God's motivation? I mean, why, why does this book exist? Why is he dictating all these commands through Moses? What's the purpose of God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt? Why did he rescue them? Why did he save them? Why did he do it? Well, the text says it really clearly. God brought them out of Egypt to be their God. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, it could, it could mean many things. It meant that, that your God was something that could be your provider. It was your protector, your deliverer, your savior, your ultimate authority, the final say on any matter, the most powerful one in the world, the highest good, could mean all these things, but it also meant, and this is important, that the presence of that God would be among them in their land. Right? If, if, if a God was your God, that God was among you. It inhabited that land. And God, this God we've met, Yahweh, wants to be their God. But it's such a weird statement if you think about it. It's a peculiar way to say it, because isn't he already their God? I mean, of course God is already their God. He's already their provider. He's already their savior and their protector. He just saved them from Egypt. He's already powerful. I mean, parting the Red Sea comes to mind, never mind like the, the litany of, of miracles recorded in the book of Exodus. 
He's already the ultimate authority. He's already the highest good in the universe. And he's everywhere. So why would God say it this way? See, it's not that, that, that God isn't already these things. He is. But being their God really means that the Israelites respond to him as God. They acknowledge that he is their God and act like it. They acknowledge that he is with them, that he's their provider, protector, deliverer, savior, authority. And they act like it. They respond to that truth. They worship him. They obey him. They adore him. They admire him. And it's so important to keep this theme in your mind as an anchor in the Bible. It's a mooring. It's a foundational theme in all of Scripture that God is about the business of calling people back to himself. I mean, this is the basic problem in Scripture that God is fixing. You know, before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve, I mean, they had the, the presence of God among them. God walked among them. His creation had unfiltered communion with him. And sin ruined it. It fractured that relationship. It broke it. And as a result, humankind is kicked out of God's presence. Imperfect people can't be in a perfect place because if they were, the place wouldn't be perfect anymore. And a God who's completely good can't let evil go unpunished. So people no longer see God face to face. He no longer walks among them. We've lost his presence. And God doesn't just call the Israelites out of Egypt, out of bondage. He didn't just take them from somewhere. He's taking them to something. He's calling them to something. He's calling them to himself to having himself as their God. I called you out of Egypt to be your God. You're saved from slavery and death to me, to my presence, my favor and protection, to my way of life, my mission, my kingdom. This is why we have Leviticus. It's starting to answer that question of what the Israelites are saved to. It answers, now what? Now that we're free, from the tyranny of this evil king, now that we've escaped Egypt, what now? And God says at Mount Sinai, now I will be your God, and consequently you will be my people. Now that you're free, I will be your God. God is calling a community to his presence. I am your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from an evil king to be your perfect good king. At the end of Leviticus, in chapter 26, God says, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. God is calling a community to his presence. Now, of course, this theme isn't only in Leviticus. This actually started way back in Genesis. But the book of, Levit of Leviticus explores three specific pieces or consequences of this call, three things that the Israelites are called to as they're called back to God. And so in Leviticus, we see these three overlapping circles of God's call. We see this call to community. God is calling a community to his presence. He's calling hundreds of thousands of people to be a community. That means they need to know how to live together. There need to be some rules governing the community so it can thrive. 
And this is the context of that famous and profound command that we all know, but that none of us know is actually in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Leviticus 19. And the second and third pieces of this call are the result of the fact that God is calling this community to his presence, to God's presence. And to be in the presence of God, for a holy God to dwell among a sinful people, something has to be done about sin. A perfectly good God cannot look the other way when it comes to sin. If he did, he would cease to be good. We we just know this, right? A government that doesn't deal with crime and evil isn't a good government. And a God who does not deal with evil is not a good God. That means he has to deal with us. So the second piece we see in Leviticus is this institution of a sacrificial system where animals, or in some cases grains, are offered to God as a means of satisfying his judgment on our sin, paying a price for our sin sin has to be punished. And the supreme example of this, the climax of this, is in the yearly Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in Leviticus 16. And the third piece we see is holiness. This is the piece that's right in our text. Be holy as I am holy. This is a very common phrase in Leviticus. It occurs five separate times in the text. What is holiness? Fundamentally, it just means something that's set apart. It's other. It's distinct. It's different. And these commands to be holy, like the one in our text today, remind the Israelites of the purpose for these laws. They're to be a distinctive people. You're God's people now. You're different. You're other. You're set apart. You're holy. So over the next three weeks, we're going to unpack all this. We're going to explore each of these three pieces of Leviticus in more detail. Next week, Pastor Sean's going to talk about the call to holiness. After that, I'll talk about the sacrificial system and the call to sinlessness, to being right with God, and then we'll conclude with this call to community. But for now, I just want to make one more observation about what we've seen so far. All these things, this call, God calling people to himself, calling them to holiness, to community, to sinlessness, all of that glorifies God. They're evangelistic laws. They show the world, the nations around the Israelites, how great God is. A community that is set apart, that loves one another, that's different, that's clean, pure. A community whose God dwells in their midst is attractive. It draws other people in. Deuteronomy 4 says this. It says, Observe my laws carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this is a great nation and wise understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? God is calling a community to his presence. And Leviticus explores specifics associated with God's call to community, to holiness, and to be free from sin, to be right with him. So Leviticus is full of these commands from God about how to live in this community, how to live as a sinful people in the midst of a holy God. But I want you to know there's something so important you need to notice about this. 
I want you to notice what didn't happen to the Israelites in this story that we've just told. What didn't happen to them? When did the Israelites receive these commands from God? Was it before or after they were rescued from death in Egypt? God didn't give the Israelites the law when they were enslaved. He didn't say when they were in Egypt, follow these laws and I'll free you and give you a land of your own and be your God. Our text today has the right chronology. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, past tense, to be your God, therefore be holy as I am holy. Now that you're free, now that I've saved you from slavery, let me tell you what I've saved you to. You're saved to my presence. And this is how it needs to look. And the same thing didn't happen to us as Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you did not follow a series of laws. You did not get your act together to become a Christian. That's not how you become a Christian. Do all these things, and then you can be a Christian. No. We were enslaved to our sins in bondage. While we were sinners, while we hated God, while we had our backs to Him, we were rescued from them. Someone, Jesus, died in our place so we wouldn't have to. Because of His life, His holiness, His obedience, we get His reward. And because of our sin, our shame, our rebellion, He got our punishment. And just like the ancient Israelites, we don't obey our way to salvation. Obedience is the response to the salvation that's already given to us. And the same holds true for those freed slaves standing at the base of Mount Sinai. Their obedience is the response to the freedom that's already been won for them, and not by their own power. In fact, if you think about this, You might ask, 3,500 years later, what's changed? What what is different about our story as a community of believers? God calls a community to his presence in Leviticus. Is God still calling a community to his presence? Has anything changed? Well, nothing and everything has changed because it's the same story but it's different. It's amplified. It's better. It's escalated to the nth degree. I mean, imagine, if you will, a conversation. Somehow, you get a, a, a Christian to go back to Mount Sinai and talk to an ancient Israelite. And this ancient Israelite person recalls with wonder, we were slaves to an evil king intent on destroying us but we were covered by the blood of a lamb. And by no power of our own, we escaped death and were set free. What would a Christian community say today? We were slaves to someone too, something that would ultimately destroy us. But worse, slaves to sin, slaves to ourselves, slaves to our own idols, money, sex, power, approval, whatever it is, something we could never escape. But we were covered by the blood of a lamb. But better, Not just any lamb, the lamb of God, a person, Jesus Christ, God's own son, 
shed his blood to cover us so we could live. How are we saved? 1 Peter 19, by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And by no power of our own, we're set free. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Our ancient friend continues, then God formed us into a new community. And through Moses, he gave us a new law and a new way of living that's unlike any other. The Christian agrees. God made us into a new community too and gave us a new law and a new way of living that's unlike any other. But it's not just a law spoken to an intermediary and recorded on stone tablets. God wrote the law on our hearts, inside each one of us personally. Hebrews 10, quoting the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, I will put my law in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. The ancient Israelite notes, we created a tent so God himself could dwell among us. Us too, says the Christian, but better. God dwells within us. The Holy Spirit is inside us. He's not in a tent next door to us. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. The Israelite goes on. God is going to lead us to a land of great blessing. Yes, says the Christian, but not just a great land, to heaven itself, a perfect land. No pain, no tears, no evil, no enemies, nothing, an eternal land that will never waste away, where everything is exactly as it should be forever. And the Israelite concludes, and then all the people around us may know how great God is. Amen, says our Christian friend. Not just this region, though, but the whole world. The ends of the earth, all the nations will know how great our God is. The patterns and the themes in the story are the same, but everything has escalated. It's bigger, it's more complete. In Leviticus, God calls a community to his presence, and today, God is still calling a community to his presence. We're still called to a community unlike any other that will show the world what God is like. Stuff like we just saw this morning. The world is not like that, friends. And that's the power of Jesus Christ among us. We're still called to holiness, to be set apart, different, pure, righteous. We're still freed slaves, freed by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, and on a journey to a better place. God calls a community to his presence. Is Leviticus relevant to us today? You know, some of the specific laws aren't, but the principles are. It's relevant because it shows us what kind of God we worship. It's the same God. And Leviticus shows us some specific ways about how God called a community to his presence. And today, God is still doing that. He still wants to be our God. He's still calling us to community. He's still calling us to be right with him, free from sin, calling us to be holy. He still wants to be our God. And let me tell you why this is just jaw-droppingly awesome news, okay? Hear this. God is calling a community to his presence 
And the presence of God is what we long for. It is what we long for. Being with him in the full measure of his presence is what we long for. The presence of God is actually what we were created for. It's what we were made for. It's the way things are supposed to be. We were created to enjoy him forever. It's the way things were before sin entered the world. And the whole arc of the Bible is God's story of making things right again and restoring what was lost to sin. God is calling a community, and that includes us, includes you, to his presence. And we long for his presence. It is what we want more than anything else. But you don't believe me. So I have to prove this to you in about five minutes. So right now, what do you long for? Name your deepest to yourself, your deepest longings. And where are, you, where are we going to land if we boil everything away? We're going to be left with just a few fundamental desires, right? Provision, security. What's number one going to be? Or at least in the top three. You know, it's been said a million times, and you've heard it a million times before, but only because it's true. It's love. You long to be loved. You long for it. Truly loved. And to enjoy everything that comes with being loved. When you're deeply loved by somebody, you feel accepted, cared for, cherished, secure. You don't want money. You want love. Money gets you a high social position, so you're admired and accepted. You really want love. Money gets you nice clothes and a cool car, so people admire you and want to be with you. You really want love. Money gets you power, so you feel like you're in control of a chaotic world and you have your act together. So you're secure. You really want love. You don't want sex. You want love. Sex is nothing less than the absolute closest you can be with somebody. You're accepted by them. You're not alone. You're cherished. You really want love. Why do you hide things about yourself? Why do we try to make ourselves look better when we mess something up? Why do we try to avoid taking blame for something? Why do we hide our most shameful thoughts or deeds? Why are you afraid of people finding certain things out about you? You don't want to be rejected. You want the opposite. You want love. You want acceptance. What makes pain and suffering bearable but the love of somebody who walks through it with you? What makes joy and pleasure sweeter but sharing it with somebody you love? I could go on and on and on and on, but I hope you're getting the picture. We, we crave love. And we absolutely cannot ever get enough of it. I've been a parent for over 10 years now. And I have poured out more love than I ever thought I had to my children. I've spent entire days with them, showering them with love, undivided attention, praise, hugs, adoration, gifts, hugs, encouragement. Guess what? It's not enough. The next morning, they wake up, and they want more. They're hungry for more. I can't fill them up. My wife and I just can't fill them up. 
Nobody, nothing can. I've been my father's son for 43 years. Last week, he sent me an email, and he said, you're a great dad. And guess what? My heart sang. My dad loves me. I'm loved. I'm accepted. It doesn't get old. I'm 43. I should be secure by now, but it still feels so good. I need it. I've been married for over 13 years to my beautiful wife, Catherine, and we have gazed into each other's eyes and said we love each other. We've written each other letters and emails and heaped on the highest praises of how wonderful we are, how special we are to each other. Gifts and surprises, hugs, sacrifice, attention, and guess what? It's not enough. It never ends. Neither of us can keep each other full. What, I have to celebrate your birthday again? <laughs> and our anniversary, too? I mean, I did that last year. That's not enough? You need me to tell you I love you again? Didn't we just do this already? Like, our wedding ceremony, that wasn't powerful enough for you to keep us going? What more do you need? Right? You laugh because it's preposterous to think about it. But it makes the point. We can never get enough. Never. And Catherine and I are, are, are blessed. We have this community around us of friends and family who are always heaping love and acceptance and encouragement on us. That's not enough. We still want more. I still need more every day, every minute. I want more love. All of us is in the same place. We can never get filled up. And what's even better? What's the best kind of love? It's love from somebody that you admire, someone you love. Think of your, your heroes. People, if you didn't, you know, if you weren't around Christians, you'd say you idolize them or you worship them, right? You're not supposed to do that, of course, but like, you know, people you really admire. Who are they? What if those people loved you? What if you were the apple of their eyes? Whoever it is, some great musician, some great politician, some great historical figure loves you. Wow, that's, that's even better. I mean, some guy gives you a hug on the street and says he loves you, that's good. <laughs> but when my wife does it, oh man. Or what if, you know, Billy Graham did it or... Whoever, Jimmy Carter, pick your heroes, right? I'll offend you by whatever heroes I pick, but think of your heroes. They love you. They want to be with you because they're awesome. They're so great. And it still wouldn't be enough. We can never get enough love in this world because our need for love is infinite. It is infinite. It's an abyss that never ends. And it's that way because that's how we were made. Like a fish was made for water, we were made for God. We were made to be with him forever. And only an infinite God can fill our infinite need for love with his boundless, unquenchable, astounding, awesome, soul-satisfying, perfect love. C.S. Lewis nailed it on the head. If I find myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for God and his unquenchable love. And that God 
that God, that awesome God, the author of life, the highest good, the be better than any of all your heroes put together, that God is calling us to his presence. He is calling us to him, the God who loves us no less than his own son, his own self, who gave him up to be killed so we could live at his initiative, his plan, his call. That God is calling a community to his presence. That God is here right now. Really, actually here in this room. Not wishful thinking, not in the abstract, but the God of the universe who made us is literally here. If you are here right now and breathing, he is calling you to his presence. There are no prerequisites. Those have been satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who has taken away our sins and made us holy so we can be in the presence of the God who loves us more than we ever dared to dream. Accept that. Accept Jesus' sacrifice for you today if you haven't done that already in your life. Let your life be covered by the blood of the Lamb and worship with us. Let's just sit in that. I'll call the, the worship team up and let's soak in God's presence. Let it just penetrate the depth of your soul. God is calling a community to his presence. And that's all we ever wanted. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. You are good, Lord. And we thank you for your word, for the truth that we see in your word, God, that you call us to yourself, to your presence. The best thing, the thing we've always wanted, the thing we long for is you. And you do not push us away. You do not reject us and judge our sin. You let yourself be judged so we could be with you forever. The way we were made to be, what we were made for. Thank you, God, for your presence in our lives. Thank you, God, for your presence right here, right now, among us and within us. We can never offer up enough praises or thanks, Lord, for who you are. And so we just receive it and enjoy it and relish that for which we've always longed. Your wonderful presence, Lord. Would you fill us with that, impress it on our minds, help us realize and be mindful and conscious of that fact. May we hold on to it with both hands, never let it go, Lord, everywhere we go, to know that the God of the universe who loves us has called us to his presence. We thank you, love you, give you praise and thanks for your goodness and mercy to us. In Jesus' name.